It's good to see you guys once again. Thank you. Jumping back in, obviously, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Hopefully your uh, Bible is kind of already trained to go there. Although, we're getting close to the end of chapter 11, which means we're going to be heading into a pretty massive study after this of chapters 12 through 14 and the whole matter of uh, spiritual gifts. Interestingly enough, the subject of spiritual gifts um, is one that's, as you know, quite misunderstood, um, uh, but has been for centuries in the life of the church, but even in particularly in our modern era. And it's interesting to consider uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 in this subject of spiritual gifts in light of the discussion that we've been in as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, that really starts off with, in this particular section that we've been in recently, starts off with a discussion about divisions in the life of the church. And as we get into 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, what we're going to find quickly is that that still is in view. That even though the manifestation of uh, the divisions and the, the sort of the separateness that's manifesting in the life of the church is manifesting in sort of a different context or, or being uh, portrayed in a different kind of way, uh, it's, it's still this matter of corrective instruction. And even though many in, in the church throughout time and history and even in our modern era have taken that particular section of Scripture and used it in a way to formulate doctrine around spiritual gifts in the life of the church, it's interesting that they don't take up the corrective aspects of it, which is the primary emphasis. So we'll, we'll have an, a good time getting into some of that as we move through that passage. But let's, uh, let's turn our attention back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you recall, we've been in this final section, starting in verse 17, that, that really uh, is focusing on the, the setting of the Lord's table, of the communion table, when the church gathers uh, for worship, but more specifically gathers to celebrate communion, to celebrate the partaking of the Lord's table. And we've been looking at this quite extensively, and we broke the study down really by virtue of a, of a title that we've been looking at. The title that we're operating with in this section is From Broken Fellowship to the Breaking of Bread. And in the first section, starting in verse 17 you'll notice that the, the focus quickly goes to this matter of divisions. You see that the, the term there in verse 18, and then factions uh, again in verse 19. This whole matter of divisions in the life of the church, the, the fellowship, in other words, was broken. And the brokenness of the fellowship, which the Apostle Paul had already raised in chapter 1, the opening chapter of the letter, dealt with divisions amongst the Corinthians. This matter of divi- divisions within the body of Christ is only in some ways sort of affirmed by the Apostle Paul if and when those divisions are oriented toward clarifying who is a genuine believer and who is not. It's an interesting kind of concept to consider when we think about this whole matter of divisions in the life of the church. We know that there is a a command for us to be diligent about pursuing unity in the body of Christ. Matt prayed that for us at the opening. We've emphasized that over and over again in our study of 1 Corinthians. But it just strikes me, particularly as I've been reflecting upon this study over the last number of months, but even more recently, and we've even alluded to this on a number of occasions in our study, 
how what we are experiencing, even in our contemporary culture, as much as some of the cultural shifts that we witnessed are troubling from the standpoint of its impact on society at large, sort of the moral slide and, and sort of the, really the loss of sanity in, in many respects, the depraved mind that's sort of now celebrated and on display uh, that we see uh, manifest in all of the major institutions that shape and form and influence society and in people and individuals and young people, younger generations. It, it, there, there's articles uh, galore about the de-churching of America or de-Christianizing America. So we see all of this, and as, as God's people, we can look to the outside culture and see these massive shifts, these really aggressive, rapid shifts, and feel a sense of angst and, and a sense of concern, maybe even at times uh, feel overwhelmed. Oftentimes, you know, we think about future generations. If you are a parent or a grandparent, you have concerns about what kind of world your children or grandchildren are going to grow up in. I mean, these are valid concerns for us to have about our children and our, our, our grandchildren, our offspring and future generations. But what I find to be uh, most, I think, compelling, and it rises up out of this study in 1 Corinthians about what we're even experiencing in our day and time is not so much what's happening in the culture out there, but what the Lord seems to be doing within the life of the professing church. Because what seems to be happening in the life of the professing church, just sort of universally, is a dividing as well. In other words, these cultural shifts are serving to put on the table for professing believers a point of decision about true conviction and what in fact, is informing that conviction. And what we're finding over and over again, and even in mass, is when you read articles about the de-churching of America, I see that not necessarily as a positive thing on the face of it. It's certainly sad. But it seems to me like this is just the refinement of the church. That God is doing something to refine His people. To create a division between those who are true and those who are false. And so we see this really coming to a very pinnacle head in this discussion about the Lord's table. The setting here of the communion table, which is to be the remembrance of the very sacrifice of Christ, that is the means by which God's people become God's people. It is our sole source of being able to identify with Christ and to be made right with Christ, in Christ, with God, to be justified by His work in His life and His life in us. That, that this very celebration of the Lord's table is to be the focal point that brings to mind that sacrifice and all that it means. In other words, it is to be a clarifying celebration, a clarifying commemoration. Every time we partake of the Lord's table, it is to have a massively and compelling clarifying impact on God's people. And this is what the Apostle Paul is taking up with the Corinthians because, as we know, that was not what it was for them 
in the first century. So let's read this section together. I think I want to go ahead and go back to the very beginning of our, of our study in, in, the, in the passages and just begin in verse 17 and read all the way through the end of the chapter, even though we're going to focus more specifically in the last half there, probably starting in verse 26. So let's start reading in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There it is. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give you directions when I come. As I said, we've been talking about this entire section, looking at broken fellowship as the first part of our study and all the characteristics of a broken fellowship. And then more recently, we've been talking about this institution of the Lord's table that we've been focusing on in this last section in verses, starting in verse 23. This is institution of the Lord's Supper. We talked about it. We, we identified or we observed several characteristics of this institution of the Lord's table. Namely, that it was delivered specifically and individually and directly by Christ to the Apostle Paul. That was a special delivery. It was also something that was d- given by a sovereign author. So the Apostle Paul was given direct instruction from Christ. We talked about that whole uh, sort of backstory that we find in Galatians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul was essentially tutored or discipled by Christ in that three-year period. But then we also note that the, the instructions that are given here quite likely are the first, the first written record of these instructions. Like this, this could predate the gospel narratives, in fact. But this was, this was written, this is sort of the Apostle Paul taking what he was directly instructed by Christ 
And what he is referring to are the actual words of Christ. So this institution of the Lord's Supper is is given to us by Christ himself, the sovereign author of this memorial meal. We also noted this somber occasion that, that that's noted in this particular account that it was not referenced as the night of the Passover or the night before Jesus was crucified or some you know, relevant day of the week reference as the historical context, but it was the night in which he was betrayed. So the setting that is put on display or emphasized here by Christ and his institution of this meal as he instructed the Apostle Paul in it, and Paul is now stating here to the Corinthians, that his, his historical reference point for that setting at the Lord's table, at the Lord's table, at that last supper, the way that he characterized it was the night in which he was betrayed. And we talked about this nature of betrayal in the life of the church. This, this again raises this specter of, of the, the purification of the church. So you have this, this man, Judas, who was a disciple among the other disciples who all the way up to the bitter end, if you will, was seated at this table with them. And yet there was a purification moment in which he was called to go and do what was in his heart to do, which was to betray the Savior. And we've talked about how that is, that is a clarion call to us to recognize that not so much are we to be overly concerned about what's taking place in the culture around us, though it is cause for legitimate concern. I'm not talking about being hermits or being, you know, monastic in our, in our approach. But the, the primary focus for us as God's people is on who we are as God's people and maintaining purity and unity within the local body of Christ. And to recognize that that purity may compel us to expose those who are oriented toward betrayal, not oriented toward unity and communion, sincere communion around the table of Christ. So we, we notice that this is, a, this is a somber occasion in which it was the night that he was betrayed. He talks about the symbolic elements in verses 23 to 25, and we had a lengthy discussion about that and how these were to be taken in remembrance of him and the entire uh, move on the part of uh, churches in history and even more particularly the Roman Catholic Church in history to somehow infuse these memorial or symbolic elements with some kind of real tangible body and blood of Christ at at the praying of a prayer by a priest totally goes against what is in this immediate context and in the broader context of Scripture. So we did a bit of a survey of Christ's use of metaphor throughout uh, the New Testament, and particularly the book of John. These are symbolic elements. These are to, to, to call to mind the sacrifice that Christ made in, 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 in the giving of his flesh, his body, on the cross and the shedding of his blood, which is the new covenant. And then we have the sacred purpose. We didn't really talk too much about this, so I want to spend some time on this today as we wrap up this section and then move into the correction that the Apostle Paul gives here on correcting their observance of the Lord's Supper. You have this sacred purpose that you pick up in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a, this is a, a, a compelling phrase here, a compelling statement. 
What the Apostle Paul captures in this one verse is quite staggering when you think about it. And again, this is to contrast what the Corinthians were actually doing in their approach to the Lord's table. It's to provide a stark contrast. He's just layering a, a, you know, a, a principle upon principle contrast to what the Corinthians were doing in their approach to the Lord's table. And as we discussed last week, in verses 24 to 25, Jesus takes the two common elements of the Passover meal, the unleavened bread and the wine, or the cup, it's referred to, in verses 24 to 25, and he, he essentially transforms their symbolic meaning. That's, what's, that's what he does. That's what the Apostle Paul is recounting here. That's what we read in the Gospels. He basically takes what is the normal symbolic elements of Passover, and he completely transforms their symbolic meaning. So no longer are these elements to be a remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage, Now they are a remembrance of Jesus' full and final and complete and sufficient sacrifice of himself, of his body, and the shedding of his blood to provide eternal deliverance from the bondage and penalty of sin, from the wrath of God. This is is totally transforming the nature of these symbolic elements. But you'll notice also in verses 24 to 25... There's, there are commands attached to these, these elements. In both cases, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Command. In both counts. So, the church is commanded to partake of the communion elements. To, to engage in the partaking of the Lord's t- uh, table. And to do so... In remembrance of him. So in one sense we could say that the sacred purpose of the Lord's table is for us to simply faithfully obey the Lord's command here. His command for us to regularly remember the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. To be reminded afresh of the immeasurable price that was paid to redeem us. And we had talked about this in the past, uh, on past weeks as we've been studying this. The fact of the matter is, is that that's a common refrain all throughout Scripture. We are called to remember over and over and over and over and over again. Do you guys remember why we're called to remember? Because we're prone to forget. It's very simple. And of all the things that we should never forget, but often are acting as though we have forgotten, is the very sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf to redeem us. And that yields up all manner of problems and difficulties in our lives individually, in our lives in fellowship with other believers. This one point of forgetfulness results in all kinds of problems and conflict and turmoil and anxiety and frustration and disappointment, unrealistic expectations of ourselves or of our circumstances or of other people, a complete miscalculation about what our life is supposed to be like or supposed to look like or supposed to feel like. But if we are calling to remembrance the cost 
of redeeming us, the price that was paid on a regular basis. We are calling to remembrance the very gospel that that saved us. Suddenly, our menial expectations about traffic or a boss that's difficult or some kind of conflict we're trying to sort out with a, a fellow believer or our financial situation or whatever it might be, suddenly that gets right-sized, does it not? That gets brought into some kind of appropriate perspective. And we begin to remember that not only did Christ pay an immeasurable price in suffering to redeem us, but that we are, in fact, identified with Christ. And like the Apostle Paul says, we are to rejoice in that we get to share in His sufferings. That when we are weak, then we are strong. Why? Because His strength is perfected in our weakness. I mean, suddenly, just this this mere common practice of remembering what the Lord has done by partaking of the Lord's table, if we are faithful in obeying that command, it has massive implications for us in our sanctification and in our peace that passes understanding in our our walk with the Lord and in our witness and our testimony amongst other believers and our faithful representation of Christ to a lost world. And you see how the Apostle Paul is coming at this with such concern. How much can the believer miss if he or she misses this? It's hard to calculate. So in one sense, the sacred purpose is confined to just our faithful obedience to do this in remembrance of him. But it goes further. He he expands even broadly, more broadly, this sacred purpose. He basically extends it from inward reflection to outward proclamation. In verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know what goes through your mind, what courses through your mind every month when we gather for communion. But every time we gather, there is a collective proclamation that is to be taking place. There is a remembering, a reflection. We'll talk about in a minute. There is to be a self-examination. So there's an internal sort of introspective approach and process. But then there's this external proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes that we're engaged in when we partake of communion. When we gather around the Lord's table and we partake of these symbolic elements, the bread and the cup, that, as we've said, they symbolize Christ's sacrifice for sin, we're not only remembering his death, but we are also proclaiming his death until he comes. It's not just remembering, but it's proclaiming. As the church gathers, this is what's so incredible to me. In this one verse... The Apostle Paul basically summarizes the full-orbed vision of the gospel. The the, the totality of it in this one verse. He says, we proclaim or you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the full-orbed gospel. When he says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, this encapsulates, obviously, Christ's death, which satisfies God's wrath against sin, It encapsulates his resurrection, 
right? Because how could you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? The assumption is that he's alive, right? His resurrection, which, as Romans teaches, secures our justification. The fact that Christ is raised, we are justified. We stand in the living, resurrected Christ before God. We don't stand on our own merit. Our justification before a holy God is is entrenched, it is rooted in Christ's resurrection. And this also encapsulates his certain future return, obviously. Because we're proclaiming the Lord's death, the resurrected Lord's death, until he comes. His, his, His certain return, which establishes or will establish his righteous reign on the earth. So think of that for just a moment. Partaking of the Lord's table is so much more than a wafer in a small cup of grape juice. If we understand what this instruction is compelling us toward. That in our reflection and remembrance of his death, his sacrifice for sin... His giving of his physical body and the shedding of his actual blood. And and the proclamation that that provides of the the full vantage point of the gospel. Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his certain return. That in our partaking of the elements of communion, we are participating in that kind of proclamation. That's why when we do communion here, you'll notice Shane is usually the one that most of the time is the one that sort of officiates communion for us. And you'll notice that he, he speaks at length about the meaning, the significance, some aspect of the communion table. Because it's a proclamation. It's not a perfunctory ceremony. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaiming the gospel, the full gospel of Jesus Christ, the full saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords as he's going to return. We do that until he comes. That's what he's calling us to. This is a sacred purpose when we engage in communion. So when Paul heard about these divisions that the Corinthians were engaged in when they gathered for communion. In verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. When he hears of this, it stands to reason in light of all of this, that he would be compelled to issue a strong corrective. This is not something that you're just sort of missing the mark on a few of the instructions. You know, this is not some kind of, of, of situation where, you know what, you got, you got instruction number one, two, and four, you missed three, and you were a little light on five. There's a massive missing of the mark here, and the Apostle Paul is compelled to go at it with strong correction. So that's what I want us to focus on for the remainder of our time. You'll see this picking up in verse 27, and really continuing through the end of the chapter, this correction concerning the Lord's Supper. Notice first this sober responsibility that that he lays upon the Corinthians, and by extension, he lays it upon us. In verse 27, he says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty 
concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. That's a good word of advice. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So you have this, this, this condition here that he, that he lays before them. Eating, eating of the elements of communion, partaking of the communion meal in an unworthy manner, which brings about what, what he calls being guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That seems pretty heavy to me. Does it seem that way to you? What, what is he talking about here? Well, let's, let's, take up the, let's take up the second part first, okay? Before we talk about what it might mean to partake of the elements of communion meal in an unworthy manner, let's sort of unpack this, this nature of the guilt that is ours when we do that. What he is referring to here is is essentially our dishonoring of the sacrifice of Christ. Listen to how Calvin describes this. He says, If the Lord requires gratitude from us in the receiving of this sacrament, if he would have us acknowledge his grace with the heart and publish it with the mouth, that man will not go unpunished who has put insult upon him rather than honor. For the Lord will not allow his commandment to be despised. This is about dishonoring the sacrifice that Christ has made. That that as believers, in a very particular kind of way, when we approach the Lord's table, in what Paul describes as an unworthy manner here, that we are bringing dishonor and reproach upon Christ himself, in other words, we are not just bringing dishonor or reproach upon the ceremony. That's the point. We can't get away with some sort of, you know, easy skate here. That, you know, I took the communion elements and my head and heart weren't really in it, but, you know, it was just communion. What he is saying to the Corinthians and saying to us is that when we do that, it is not just us not really taking to account what the bread symbolizes, or what the cup symbolizes. It's that we are, in fact, dishonoring Christ himself when we do that. That's the outcome of this kind of dishonor. I want to take you to to the account of the crucifixion for a moment, and and I want us to have a visceral sort of recognition of, of the kind of dishonor that was in view in that setting. And recognize that we can align ourselves with the same kind of exhibitions of dishonor that we see there. Turn, if you will, or just read along with me from Matthew chapter 27. I'm just picking up. This is, this is the, the account of, of the, the arrest and crucif- uh, uh, trials and 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 uh, beating and all the mocking of Christ. This is the, this is the sort of the, the broader story or account of the cruci- crucifixion uh, in Matthew's gospel. But I'm picking up in verse 27 of chapter 27, where the soldiers are getting involved. Starting in verse 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. 
And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. It doesn't end there. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And you pick up the account of the robbers again in Luke Chapter 23, starting in verse 39, you don't have to go there because it's a short section I'm going to read. But what we see here in Luke, in the account of the robbers, is a continuation of the mocking and then the salvation of one robber who gets it. And I want you to pay careful attention about how this robber is transformed in his perspective of what it means to honor Christ. Now remember, from Matthew's account... For a period of time while they're on the cross with Christ, both robbers are are joining in in the mockery of Christ. And then you pick up the account of the, the thieves on the cross in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you, under, you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Do you not fear God? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, here's here's the the, the scene. Here's the... Here's the principal point that I I want us to see here. You have a vivid display of men and women dishonoring Christ and what that looks like and sounds like. And then you have one who comes to Christ with honor and reverence and humility. And, and complete dependence upon the mercy and grace of God. Nothing to offer. He's on a cross. He, he's, he's being killed for his crimes. And at the end of this account, 
what do we find but that thief worthy? Worthy. Made worthy. In other words, when we think about this principle of of dishonoring Christ, of being guilty of the body and blood of Christ, we come to the Lord's table flippantly, disrespectfully, without reflection, sinfully, wickedly. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. When we do that, we are aligning ourselves, in a sense, with those who would mock Christ, who would, who would approach the Savior in His moment of sacrifice with mocking derision as opposed to one who also was a part of the mocking crowd on the cross with him, but was transformed on that cross and became humble before the Savior and sought to honor him. And in that demonstration of humble appeal was made worthy in that instant. So what are we talking about when we're talking about approaching this table in an unworthy manner. We alluded to this last week, I believe. This is not about us getting all cleaned up. This is not about us only partaking of communion when we've sort of addressed all of the external moral weaknesses and foibles, or that we've gone like a whole week without committing that that nagging sin. This, This can't be what it's about. Otherwise, you wouldn't have Luke's account of the thief. That man, from an external view, was completely and utterly unworthy to say one word to Christ. He was made worthy in his sinful state. So, approaching the table in an unworthy manner cannot be some conception of external morality, of sort of external, and I mean only external, I mean like exclusively external uprightness of life and conduct, as though we kind of clean up the outside and now we have this proverbial golden ticket to partake of the meal. It can't, it can't be that. The fact of the matter is, is if that were the case, then none of us could take communion. As I said last time, every time we come to the communion table, we all come, in a sense, unworthy, right? I mean, that's, that's what the communion celebration reminds us of. We can't engage in a faithful remembrance without remembering our sin before a holy God that forced us face down so that all we could do would be to cry out for the mercy of God to save us. We come to the table and we reflect honestly on Christ's broken body and his shed blood. It magnifies in our mind, if we're reflecting carefully on it, it magnifies in our mind our sinful state and our desperate need once again for Christ's forgiveness and cleansing and his sustaining grace. So we come to the table unworthy in a sense. But what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here is coming in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy conduct, in an unworthy disposition, if you will. So so let's look at that a little more closely. In the immediate context, obviously we saw in verses 18 to 19 
that there were divisions and factions among them. And we talked about that at length when we were looking at those verses and how we, we should not partake of communion, this act that is to be emblematic or symbolic of our unity in Christ and in his sacrifice as God's people. We come around that table in unity in our common faith and dependence upon Christ and his saving work on the cross. We shouldn't come to that table harboring ongoing conflict and unresolved conflict with other believers that we're sort of dug, we've dug our heels in, that, that we have not taken steps that we should be taking to try to resolve conflict with other believers. Or maybe more generally, that we have adopted certain attitudes toward fellow believers in the body of Christ that would create some sort of, you might say, social dichotomy. Social, you know, unleveling, if you will. The the fact of the matter is that when we come to the table, we are coming before proverbially the cross of Christ where the ground, as they say, is level, right? That's the whole point. This is what had the Apostle Paul so exercised about the Corinthians. There were those in the church in Corinth that just thought themselves better than other people. They thought themselves more worthy than other people, more gifted than other people. Having arrived, I mean, he, 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 the Apostle Paul actually mocks them earlier on in the letter. Already you have arrived. Already you have become rich. And then he corrects them and says, would that you would have become rich because we would reign with you. Would that you would have become kings and we would have reigned with you. But we as apostles, that's not the case. We're persecuted. We're mocked. We're rejected. We're scorned. That's the nature of the true sort of faithful witness of Christ, he would say. So he was, he was in, incredibly frustrated at their, their unleveling of themselves with one another. So if there are divisions or if there are subtle sort of social better than attitudes that are in play, or if there is a selfish disregard for other fellow brothers and sisters, especially those who are in need, you see this in verses 20 to 22, you had those who had means and had food and, and they were wanting to kind of have their, their social meal before the communion elements were taken, before the poor people arrived so they wouldn't have to share the food. So there was this sort of elitist sort of social dynamic going on that, that resulted in them demonstrating a complete self-centered disregard for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We talked about this before too. There were likely slaves among them. I mean, in other words, you're in, a, you're in a societal situation where there literally are ingrained into the structures of society better thans and less thans, greater thans and less thans. Like it's known and identified, that's who you are. So all of a sudden now you've got the gospel coming to Corinth. You've got people from every social strata coming to faith in Christ. You've got those with means and those who are slaves coming to faith in Christ in Corinth, and gathering as God's people. And the Apostle Paul would say, gather around the cross. That'll right-size your perspective on everything. And to the extent that you're not, it's anathema. You are dishonoring Christ himself when you have those kinds of attitudes toward one another. This is a powerful testimony about the nature of the church and what the leveling effect of the work of Christ in every believer should result in as we gather. Or it could be a prideful and even a carnal, sort of unsober disposition when partaking of the Lord's table. I mean, he even talks about some getting drunk, some, some engaging in what, what could have been considered a worldly revelry, 
sort of bringing in worldliness, worldly practices, worldly sort of religious worship practice into the communion meal of the church, of the professing church of Christ in Corinth. So there's this prideful sort of like worldly carnality that we could bring to the table, sort of an unrepentant worldliness that that we're persisting in in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Or it could be simply this empty and perfunctory sort of ritualistic approach to the Lord's table where we come and it's just, it's just what we do. You know, we just, it's just kind of it's what we do every month and we just partake of it. Or, or coming at it from the perspective of it that it's somehow, it's somehow absolving us from sin. Somehow if we partake in this, then somehow we're okay now. As though that could actually do the job of bringing a dead soul to life. A wafer and a cup of juice. Sadly, there are those that, that believe that, not, not, hopefully, not hopefully in our church, but there are those who believe that their participation in a periodic mass and partaking of the elements of communion infuses them with salvation, absolves them from their guilt, and makes them right with God. Any of these would be examples of partaking of the elements of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner having divisiveness or a divided kind of relationship that's persisting, that you haven't done what you can to resolve. And, and by the way, just a note, there are always con- there's always conflict. I think I've said this before, too. I don't want to set a standard here that's just not realistic. We're always, in, you know, we're always having to contend with certain levels of conflict, in our relationships, family, friends, and the body of Christ. So this is not the kind of thing where, you know, you're constantly, like, every week you're like, oh, well, I kind of lost my temper with my kid. I guess I can't take communion this week. And then the next week it's like, yeah, man, I kind of got upset with that brother when he said this, and I didn't really talk to him about it yet. I mean, you never take communion, right? We're always sort of having to work through conflict and resolve conflict. The point is, are you reveling in your right position in the conflict and persisting in it? That's a different posture altogether. So that's, that's the idea. That we're, we're pursuing unity and we're pursuing peace. We're, 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 uh, we're, we're occupying the, the fellowship of the body of Christ. We're, our comings and goings amongst God's people are characterized by a selflessness, a willingness to sacrifice, a conscientious awareness of the needs of other people. Like, that's our preoccupation, not how can we get this food consumed before the poor people arrive. That's, that's the absurd point that the Apostle Paul is making. It's just, it's just highlighting in really what is a, a, an a absurd disregard for the needs of other people. That we come selfless, we come to the cross recognizing that we are utterly undone apart from his saving work, and we gather around other people who are in the same position. And we come with hearts that are bent toward repentance, toward humility, and toward the desire to be faithful in what he's called us to in the body of Christ. So that's, that's the correction there. That's, that's the sober responsibility that we have. He, he then says, so I suggest you examine yourself. In light of all this, take a hard, close look at yourself. That's the, the natural consequence of it. This, this term for examine means close scrutiny. So it's a call to really 
you know, dig into your own heart, your own mind, your own, your own thinking, your own actions, your own habits and patterns of life, to be very, very scrutinizing of yourself in this regard. The fact of the matter is, is that um, I, I, we obviously can't do, a, I think, an adequate job of that in the two or three minutes that we get when we do communion, right? So the point is, is that every time we come together with God's people, we should be characterized by careful self-examination, trying to, trying to deal honestly with our own sin before we seek to commune with God's people and particularly commune with God's people around the Lord's table. So we're talking about this kind of faithfulness to examine ourselves before we partake. But then notice the severe consequence when we persist in partaking of the Lord's table without, without faithful examination. We, we persist in partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. He, he says literally in verse 29... For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So the Apostle Paul has clearly been given insight into some of the reasons why there is literal physical ailment and like on, at, at scale. Like there's something affecting the church at Corinth that the Apostle Paul is pointing to and saying, there are elements of this that are part of God's discipline of his people. That in fact, God will discipline his children who are persisting in unfaithfulness. That is a guarantee. And he would, he would discipline his own even to the point of removing them. That, that is not off the table for the Lord. It's not intended to be some kind of fear motivation. It's just a fact. You see this actually in a little bit of a different light in chapter 5. If you recall in chapter 5, you have the occasion in 1 Corinthians where you have this man who is engaged in a kind of conduct that is not even named among the pagans. Like you have a professing believer in the life of the church who, Scripture says, has his father's wife, so likely his stepmother, in an, in an illicit, ungodly, sexual relationship. And the, the instructions from the Apostle Paul in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, are this. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for what? The destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a believer that the Apostle Paul is saying, turn this one over. Turn him over to Satan. Put him out of the church. And, and it's possible that the consequence of his actions, if he persists, is the destruction of his flesh. I don't know if that means dying, but we're talking about the disciplining hand of the Lord that does not result in damnation. It's just removal from unfruitful testimony and witness in the life of the church. The Lord will discipline his own, and the Apostle Paul points to this as a severe consequence that's actually being experienced in Corinth as, as they are approaching the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. But notice, 
There's also a sanctifying grace here in this discipline. In verse 31 and 32, he says, But if we judged ourselves truly, if we, if we would have examined ourselves, if we would have discerned ourselves, is a good translation of that, if we would have discerned ourselves truly, we would have not been judged. We would have not been chastised in this way. We would have not been disciplined. If we would have examined ourselves and we would have sort of cleared the deck of the unfaithfulness of the unworthy manner in which we were approaching the table, we would not be judged. And then verse 33, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. When we are chastised, maybe is a better translation there. These are, this is sort of a play on a, a word for, for judge and a form of the word for judge or to be judged. So this is really about the, the chastisement or the discipline of the Lord of his people. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, there is a grace in the Lord's discipline. There is a a kindness in the Lord's discipline. This is the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthian believers and saying to us that we should, in a sense, welcome the Lord's discipline, the Lord's correction. We, we should not fear it or run from it. We should welcome it in a sense. And so if that discipline comes directly at the hand of the Lord and touching our physical body, or if it comes through the means of other people in the family of God and the church coming alongside us and sort of calling us out and, and appealing to us to come to repentance and to make things right with other believers and come around the communion table in faithfulness, we shouldn't bristle. We, should, we shouldn't reject or resist that kind of correction. The Lord uses that kind of discipline. It's a, it's a sanctifying grace. He uses it so that we aren't condemned with the world. So that we aren't proven to be unbelieving and judged along with those who are not in Christ. This is sanctifying grace, this discipline of the Lord, and we ought to welcome it. And then there's this, finally, this selfless priority. Here's what he calls them to. Here's sort of his conclusion. He says, so then, my brothers, verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. In other words, this is not about you. It's about the communion of God's people. So you wait. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. In other words, don't come to the communion table for what you're going to get what you're going to consume. This is, this is such an important principle. This is, this is a broader principle for us as God's people that our, our gathering together, whether it's gathering together on a time when we are having communion or when we're just gathering as part of the regular meetings of the church for worship and for study, that when we gather together, we must resist the temptation to be exclusively consumer-minded. This whole section that we're going to look at, starting in chapter 12, about spiritual gifts, it's not about what you can get or what I can get. It's all about what we're called to give. What God has graced us with that we are in turn then to give in service to the body of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul is pointing to. You're not coming to the assembly to consume, to get what you want. 
You're coming to give. You're coming to sacrifice. You're coming to wash a brother or sister's feet. You're coming to emulate the, the servanthood of Christ when you come together. And so if someone's hungry, eat at home. Don't, don't bring that sort of consumer, what am I going to get out of this mindset, into the assembly. Leave that at home. Put that aside. In a practical sense, he's really rebuking them because they were literally coming together and consuming food selfishly. But there's a broader principle here as well. And here's the result when we do this. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. This is the result. When we we come to the Lord's table in faithfulness and, and in the desire and the commitment to obey the command to do this in remembrance of Him, when we are reflecting carefully upon the work of Christ on the cross and what that means for us as redeemed people, and when our broader disposition is one of seeking to serve and seeking to sacrifice and seeking to share in the sufferings of Christ, to be reminded of our great need of a Savior when we come before the Lord's table, then we have no fear of the discipline of the Lord the judgment of the Lord, the chastisement of the Lord. And we promote the unity of the faith and the bond of peace amongst God's people. I can't tell you how beneficial this study has been for me in in both growing my, or deepening my gratitude for the local church, for this local body of believers, and also stimulating my desire to protect the fellowship to guard it, and I I hope that that's your heart as well, that we need to be diligent in preserving the unity and the bond of peace. We need to be vigilant in that regard. We need to be examining ourselves, and we need to be holding one another to account. And when we come before the communion table of all the things that we do together, this ought to be the pinnacle that reminds us of who we are as the body of Christ. That we are not an assembly of consumers coming to participate in some kind of production that we judge whether or not we feel like it was good or bad or worth our time or not. That we, in fact, are members of Christ's body and we come to serve and to give and to be held accountable and to hold others accountable and to grow in faith and godliness so that our testimony is a faithful proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray.